Ladies, gentlemen, and children of all ages, welcome to Plants and Their Friends. This is Robert Itis, and we are at our favorite caboose in downtown Marshall. And today, we have a guest, uh, Cynthia Johnson. Hello. With uh, um, Moon Made Botanicals uh, over in Tennessee, real close. Very close. Yeah. And so we appreciate her coming over. She has a blog. And on that blog, um, you can get that through Moon ba- uh, Moonmade Botanicals on my website. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, on Facebook is where you saw this article, actually, that I found. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's also on Facebook. So um, this, uh, Cynthia and I have known each other for quite a number of years. And we kind of... Uh, m- Remet in uh, West Virginia, and so now uh, uh, she is uh, uh, going to be uh, coming through this area a lot more often. And I decided that this would be a a good time for us to get to share some information with the Wart uh, plants and their family friends. For those who want to look uh, up old programs, you should go to www.ncgoldenseal.com, and we'll repeat that at the half hour. Okay, so when I uh, was reviewing uh, Cynthia's blog, I ran across one of uh, uh, these articles that um, were produced. How did you find it, Cynthia? Uh, I found it in doing a search for um, organic soils just to see what was happening out there. I have been practicing a couple of alternative forms of gardening in that no pesticide use, and that is um, lasagna gardening using cardboard and um, humanure, which we'll probably get more into later. But that's how I found this article and decided to share it on my Facebook page. That's, and that's how it's coming to us today. Yes. Um, so uh, a lot of it we're going to uh, read right off of the uh, uh, article, and then we're going to discuss some of the things. Okay. Uh, so uh, let me start out by saying, uh, and this is uh, a program on soils. 
So one uh, of the biggest modern myths this article talks about in agriculture is that organic farming is inherently sustainable. It can be, but it is not necessarily. After all, soil erosion from chemically free-tilled fields undermined the Roman Empire and other ancient societies around the world. Other agricultural myths hinder recognizing the potential to restore degraded soils to feed the world using fewer agrochemicals. So uh, when David R. Montgomery embarked on a six-month trip to visit farms around the world to research his forthcoming book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soils Back to Life. Now that is already out. That is already out and available in all the usual places. Okay. So uh, innovative farmers that uh, David met showed him that regenerative farming practices can restore the world's agricultural soils in both the developed and developing worlds. These farmers rapidly rebuilt the fertility of their degraded soil, which then allowed them to maintain high yields using far less fertilizers and fewer pesticides. The experiences from that book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soils Back to Life, uh, were the results that uh, David Montgomery saw on the farms in North and South Dakota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Ghana, Coast, and Costa Rica, or for compelling evidence that the key to sustainable, high-productive agriculture lies in rebuilding healthy, fertile soil. This journey also led uh, David to question three pillars of conventional wisdom about today's industrial agricultural, agrochemical agriculture. That n number one, that it feeds the world. Number two, that it is more efficient way to produce food. And number three, that it will be necessary to feed the future. Correct. And so this so intrigues me because I see in the in the broader picture, uh, modern um, agricul agriculture, the way that we grow monocrops, uh, the same thing over and over and over again, we know depletes the soil. And when we use Roundup Ready seeds, um, or if we use Roundup in the fields, this is killing our bees, our pollinators. And so for me, this led me to, uh, into some searches. Um, I as I met some people who were doing a, a rooftop, a living roof, right in Asheville, um, one of the first in this area, and another friend who's digging up her lawn and putting in a garden in the front yard. And uh, it took me back to remembering back in the 70s how uh, front yard or backyard gardens were a lot more common and how we've gone away from that. So, and in my own world, on my own little acre garden, um, I just have been experimenting with some alternative practices to what is commonly, um, what you're commonly told you have to do. 
Great. Well, um, we're uh, so grateful for your coming by today so that we can My pleasure. Uh, get uh, uh, some of our listeners uh, keyed into some of these myths that are out there. And then uh, very soon after that, we'll give them some of the solutions. So myth number one is that large-scale agriculture feeds the world today. According to a recent UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, report, family farms produce over three-quarters of the world's food. The FAO also estimates that almost three-quarters of all farms worldwide are smaller than one hectare, or about 2.5 acres, or the size of a typical city block. Even the World Bank... Oh, no. Went too fast. Okay. Only about 1% of Americans are farmers today. Now, that's definitely down. Down. And despite that, they're still supplying three-quarters of the world's food, which is amazing. Yet most of the world's farmers work the land to feed themselves and their families... So while conventional industrial agriculture feeds the developed world, most of the world's farmers work small family farms. A 2016 Environmental Working Group report found that almost 90% of the U.S. agricultural exports went to developed countries with few hungry people. That is amazing. Okay, so let's just reiterate that large-scale agriculture feeds the world today is not true. It's a myth. In fact, much of what the large industrial farms grow, which we'll see here in a moment, is not even used as food. It's corn and soy that is made into other things, um, animal feed and that sort of thing. Okay. Now we'll get to myth number two, that larger farms are more efficient. Uh, This is the uh, definite uh, view of gobbling up and merging and uh, uh, having the big guys take out the little guys. Many high-volume industrial process exhibit efficiencies at large scale that increase inputs Per unit of production. So people then took those and said, well, if more widgets you make, the more efficiency you can make each one, uh, it does not necessarily uh, go into agriculture because agriculture is different. In 1989, National Research Council study concluded that well-managed alternative farming systems nearly always use less synthetic chemical pesticides, fertilizers, and antibiotics per unit of production than conventional farms. And that's quite a statement to, um, to the smaller farmers and an indication that it can be done. And while mechanization can provide cost and labor efficiencies On large farms, bigger farms don't necessarily produce more food. 
According to a 1992 agricultural census report, small diversified farms produce more than twice as much food per acre than large farms do. And just another affirmation. <laughs> Even the World Bank endorses small farms as they are a way to increase agricultural output in developing nations where food security remains a pressing issue. While large farms excel at producing a lot of a particular, particular crop, like corn or wheat, small diversified farms produce more food and more kinds of food per hectare overall. On top of the fact that it helps uh, put the uh, rainwater back in the ground right there, right. It, it also uh, has more biodiversity, so you'll have more insects, you'll have uh, a better chance to get uh, the insects to do the work that the chemicals are doing right now. So, to state it again, large farms are not more efficient. Uh, smaller farms are more efficient. And healthy as well, because they're rotating what they're growing. They're not using pesticides. You, uh, it's natural pest control in the way of um, marigolds and a number of other things one can do. And now we get to the third myth that conventional farming is necessary to feed the world. I've heard that so much so have I. from the industry. And um, we've all heard proponents of conventional agriculture claim that organic farming is a recipe for global starvation because it produces lower yields. The most extensive yield comparison to date, a 2015 meta-analysis of 115 studies found that organic production averaged almost, listen everyone, 20% less conventional grown crops. A similar find, uh, a finding similar to those of previous studies. So organic production will be a better a way to feed the world than conventional crops. But the study went a step further, comparing crop yields on conventional farms to those of organic farms, where cover crops were planted and crops were rotated to build soil health. These techniques shanked the yield gap to below 10%. Which is wonderful. It's a little bit less, but it's not that much less. And it's healthier, cleaner and taking our bodies into account, our neighborhoods, the bees, and so forth. So the authors concluded that the actual gap much, may be a lot smaller than even 10%, as they found evidence of bias in the meta uh, data set towards studies reporting higher conventional yields. In, thus, in other words, the basis for claims that organic agriculture can't feed the world depend as much on specific farming methods as the type of farm. Wonderful to know. And th that's really important. Consider, too, that about a quarter of all food produced worldwide is never eaten 
As I said, yes. Each yeah. year, the United States alone throws out 133 billion pounds of food, more than enough to feed the nearly 50, Ameri 50 million Americans who regularly face hunger. So even taken at face value, the offset yield gap between conventional and organic farmer is smaller than the amount of food we routinely throw away. And that is quite remarkable and something we should all think about and pay attention to. Yes. If we just use the food that we grew correctly and efficiently, then we would have a lot less people who will be going to bed home uh, at night hungry especially the children, over a million. Uh, these stats are very, very discouraging on one level. Uh, th the parts in here that are even more discouraging to me is the fact that they're not even talking about quality. The quality of organic food versus the quality of commercial food is like you're talking about two different products. They're not even on the same standard. Organic food, fresh, out of your garden, 50 feet away from your kitchen, is a world away from anything commercialized or frozen or canned or whatever. And as is the organic food from your grocery store, getting more and more available... And he does speak um, further into his book a, a bit more about quality of food as well. And, you know, to make these changes, it becomes a community project to, as, as Mark does some talking about growing gardens and how to do that organically and efficiently and how to use what we make because there's often too much of one thing or the other, which therein can be freezing or canning or fermenting, which has become quite popular lately. Yes. And is so healthy. Yes. Wonderfully healthy for us. Yes. And, and we, we've got to understand also, and they are my friends, uh, but I, I want to call them out so that they understand what they're doing. But all of ag extension that certifies chemical spraying and uh, turns a nod to uh, what uh, Roundup is doing to our water systems and air uh, is really not helping the problem. It's not, particularly when there are other methods available for pest control that you can grow or you can create with essential oils in a spray bottle. If we're talking of a field of plants, that's difficult. But if we're talking a front yard garden or a neighborhood garden, a block garden has become popular in some large cities, it seems to me that this is where we begin to incorporate and teach people how to do these techniques which are not hard and are not expensive, which is um, something I commonly hear, I can't afford that as far as organic. But, you know, on some level, you either afford it or you pay the doctor bill later in in many cases. And as 
we baby boomers, which I am, are getting older, we're beginning to understand that on a deeper level. With well, it, it, it's uh, uh, a lot harder for people to understand that now numerous years poisonous chemicals have been put into our bodies through our food system. And uh, uh, it's still not by the government really recognized or uh, stated as such. Well, as toxic, we're fighting some big companies that um, plastic companies and large farming companies and uh, big agribusiness and even big pharma who... Uh, want to convince us and try to convince us and do a lot of lobbying to convince us that these practices are not bad policy when in fact they're very bad policy if you want to live a long and healthy life. If we're thinking about our bodies and not our pocketbook, uh, it becomes a different story. And I, I say that in that the end result should not be to make a pile of money. The end result should be to feed healthy food to your family, your neighborhood, your community, or whatever it is, whoever it is you're feeding. There is a revolution that is happening where people are now growing their own food. Uh, it wasn't that way when I was growing up. Uh, even out in the farming area where there was a lot more than 1% farmers, uh, their uh, uh, way of life, uh, of producing food and excess going to the community was the way that we were all healthy. When the chemicals came in, and we've got to remember, I've mentioned this on the show a couple of times, that it all basically started at World War One, when the... Uh, uh, both sides were trying to kill each other with gases. And uh, the United, beginning of the United Nations started uh, with uh, an outlawing of all uh, gases. And these companies that produce these gases then turned into become our major agricultural and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they are still trying to kill. Killing is what they do best. And unfortunately, when you kill uh, some of the things that are beneficial for the growing of plants, you're also killing some of the good things. And in that way, they are producing inferior food. Conventional agriculture is inferior to organic. No matter what the price tag is on it, it's inferior food. Yes, and th this is... This includes food that is grown or made, cheese, milk, uh, made by our cows. Um, it, we have to look at that. And I additionally have become fanatical about looking at how things are packaged. Plastic is where uh, healthy food really went awry when I was growing up because everything came in plastic and quick cooking in a plastic bag and uh, sticking hot things into Tupperware and so forth. This was when all this began and all that was getting dumped into the environment and soil. And and it, it would in those days, uh, ice cream, it became apparent to me when I was a teenager 
there was an ingredient in ice cream um, back in the 60s and 70s that was part of the paint remover process. They had an abundance of this particular chemical and um, decided to use it um, in ice cream, commercial ice cream. And look at what they used to get turkeys fattened up um, quite quickly. There's some interesting articles about that, um, yeah. how byproducts are being used, fed to us, because they need to do something with them. Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're, we're in such a greed economy, and our agriculture has uh, fallen uh, to that uh, greed. Uh, where uh, all they're looking at is the bottom line on money and satisfying their stock uh, uh, stockholders uh, by producing more and better uh, um, profits, which uh, is the real major problem that we're dealing with uh, on many fronts in this country. Food is just one of them. Food. And so our food choices send a message to those big companies about what we will and will not accept. And um, it's important because we could sit and talk about how bad it is. Or um, I spent a lot of time doing that as a youth. Or we can, you know, create alternatives, which is what Robert and I are talking about and what we're doing in our own lives. Yes. And we, we, we have to... Uh uh, really uh, extend our uh, our knowledge to our community, uh, and especially the little ones growing up. Critical. Need, need to understand uh, why it's important to grow their own food. Indeed. And um, I had a group of kids uh, to my land where I was creating a lasagna garden bed, out of cardboard and a clean bed, which I had de-weeded for the most part, not with chemicals, by cutting them or pulling them, putting cardboard down, and then putting humanure soil on top of that layer by layer. And without having to say too much to them, they were just quite interested in what was going on and could they drag the cardboard up the hill. And it was really quite a beautiful experience. Um, and for them to know that this healthy lettuce they had in a bowl came from that garden bed next to this one that had been grown in the same way was just really quite special. Now we are going to uh, uh, go to uh, a bit of a commercial break to tell you that this is uh, Plants and Their Friends, for those who just tuned in. And we're talking about soils today. My guest is Cynthia Johnson, and we're uh, taping at the booth uh, on Main Street in downtown Marshall. This is WART 95.5 FM on your dial. Uh, you can get us um, on the web and uh, do live streaming. Or you can go to my website, www.ncgoldenseal.com, and find a, a list of all the podcasts that we do, have done. I think we're up to 38. And so we did one on fermentation uh, before this, and that'd be 39, and this one's going to be 40 ah. on soils. 
So let's uh, start to, uh, we've given you a bunch of uh, problems that we have out here. Let's try uh, for the uh, remainder of the program to give you uh, places that you can go or situations that you can follow up on to make uh, your life uh, a healthy, organic a gardening experience um, and uh, building healthy soils is uh, actually uh, what we're going to be talking about right now and I want to go uh, to mention Patrick Battle and Living Web Farms who indicated that there was a study uh, they've been taking soil fertility uh, samples and studying since the 1950s and never has our soil been worse and nitrogen is one of the things that is uh, being eroded from the soil uh, either because we break up the soil or we mm -hmm. use it up and um, uh, he is advocating uh, uh, everybody uh, collect their urine and put it into their compost because that way we will get more uh, nitrogen into our soils. Uh, and this is from Living Web Farm, and I would encourage you to go. They have many, many different uh, programs that they have uh, already uh, have in their archive. So let me get back to uh, Mr. Montgomery uh, and his uh, article. Building healthy soils, conventional farming practices that degrade soil health undermine humanity's ability to continue feeding everyone over the long run. Regenerative practices like those used on the farms and ranches I visited show that we can readily improve soil fertility on both large farms in the U.S. and on so small subsistence farms in the tropics. I no longer see debates about the future of ag agriculture as simply conventional versus organic. In my view, we're oversimplified the complexity of the land and underutilized the ingen ingenuity of farmers. I now see adopting farming practices that build soil health as the key to a stable and resilient agriculture. And the farmers I visited had cracked this code, adopting no-till methods, cover cropping, complex rotations to their particular soil, environment, and socioeconomic conditions. Now, no-till, and we'll, we'll continue on here. I just want to take a sidebar. Uh, no-till was first uh, talked about in permaculture. Uh, and that um, was uh, here in the, uh, in the late 70s when we got visited from uh, the Australian folks. And uh, uh, you can view Permaculture 1 and Permaculture 2 that uh, was very hot at the day. Uh, and it talks about how there are existing communities of organisms that are in the soil. 
if you break that soil, you are uh, disturbing that community, and it has to be rebuilt. And that takes money and time and effort to rebuild it. Whereas if you do no-till, or as uh, Cynthia just talked about, uh, lasagna farming, uh, you are building up the soil, and you're basically building a raised bed by creating new layers every single year onto that soil and adding elements of nutritions and nutrients to that soil as you build it up so that in my beds at Eagle Feather Organic Farm, there are some beds you can just take your hand and dip down into black loamy soil that's been created over these years. Wonderful. Yes, and it is amazing what, uh, how uh, d- rich, not dense, rich soil becomes uh, over time. Just cardboard and nutrients and whatever else it is that you add. Do you ever add dirt, Robert, any soil on top of each soil? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the compost that we, we make... Um, we there's a statistics that I don't know if we came to, but forty um, percent uh, of everything you bought at a grocery store, or even if you brought it in from the garden, forty percent of that will be waste. Wow. And and what we need to do is not throw that into a landfill. Uh, what we need to do is return that to the soil. Correct. And Everything to the soil. Yes, yeah. and and by creating new soil. So one of the uh, aspects of doing this uh, simply is to take uh, some pallets. Uh, first, you take a uh, 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 screen so that you don't have rodents or mice coming up from the bottom. And you have a screen that is on pallets, four pallets and the pallets are roped together to create uh, uh, a space where you can put uh, your table scraps as well as your uh, leaves and your weeds from your garden mm-hmm. that will create new dirt and new soil uh, to uh, uh, be put on. Uh, some, sometimes we just uh, put them into pots and grow things right out of it. Sometimes we add amendments around the plants as we're, we're uh, replanting. How long do you let your compost um, age? Well, that's a great question. Um, two uh, different composts uh, on our farm are created differently. Mm-hmm. So um, right now uh, we have uh, decided not to put our food scraps into an open container. Mm. So that, um, when it has a door at the bottom and you have black soil at the bottom, you scoop that out and it just keeps on lowering itself and you just keep on, on doing it. Uh, the soil that is uh, made from weeds that are in the wrong place or leaves that come down um, that you collect and, and store... That um, that we just take out the ca- we don't turn them 
usually too much. Uh, we just let them pile up. And then eventually, when we pull the, uh, either open up the pallets or we pull the, uh, the wire, the fencing wire around them, uh, what we'll have is uh, some matter that hasn't totally composted all around the top and the sides. Mm -hmm. And you got to scoop all of that up and start a new compost bin with that. And then you'll have the stuff inside that got to 160 degrees. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need so that you don't have all of the seeds uh, making your weeding uh, uh, a, hor a horror uh, experience. <laughs> there are so many different ways to make compost. It's absolutely amazing. Bins that you rotate and what you're just talking about. And uh, I do it a completely different way because I have composting toilets, which are literally buckets. And those buckets get dumped with food scraps and weeds and leaves into four hay bales is the uh, container. And then two more get... Uh, one more gets stacked up on each of those. So it's eight hay bales in a square, and everything gets dumped into it. And it begins to fall in on itself, and we open up the top and pour more stuff in. And then uh, after a season, a cycle, it's usually a year, um, that pile is covered and uh, covered with a tarp after a nice layer of green goes on it uh, at the end of the year. And... Um, that sits for a year. And again, there's that layer on top that you mentioned that you pull off, and there is beautiful, beautiful black dirt. The pile goes from being maybe uh, five feet tall down to around two and a half or three feet. It, it very much diminishes as it uh, degrades and composts. So some of the things that you just have to watch out, um, some people will, uh, like we do on our farm, will live trap animals that would normally eat this. If your uh, land does not have a lot of them, it, you can open it up a little bit more. Otherwise, you have to cl uh, close it down. Uh, one of the things that you need to know about compost is that leaves, brown material, not green material, should be the majority of your compost. Right. And so every time you put something green on on your compost, you should immediately have a place where you have leaves that you can come and put a bunch of them on it. And that also uh, protects, especially from the birds, the crows from coming down into your compost, to eat your, uh, your corn and your, all your veggies that you're not eating. Uh, this, um, uh, this is just, it takes a little bit of time and one of the things that you can do is just watch your compost and see who comes who's and who's visiting. Yeah, who's <laughs> visiting uh, your compost. Okay, let me get back uh, to this article now. Whether they were organic or still use some fertilizers and pesticides, the farms I visited in those locations was, let's see, was North Dakota, South Dakota, Pennsylvania. Ohio, Costa, Costa Rica, Rica mm -hmm. and one other place. Costa Rica, and it's slipping my mind. I think it was like Ghana? Ghana, yes, Ghana. Yes. And so um, the farms that uh, uh, Montgomery visited uh, that adapted this transformational suite of practices 
all reported harvests that consistently matched or exceeded those from neighboring conventional farms after a short transition period. And what he was saying is that they were adapting no-till methods, cover cropping, and complex rotations. That uh, the reported harvests that consistently matched or exceeded those from neighboring conventional farms after a short transition period. Another message was as simple as it was clear. Farmers who restore their soils use fewer inputs to produce higher yields, which translates into higher profits, but also, in this case, into higher quality food. Much higher. Yes. No matter how one looks at it, we can be certain that agriculture will soon face another revolution. For agriculture today runs on abundant, cheap oil for fuel and to make fertilizers. And our supply of cheap oil will not last forever. There are already enough people on the planet that we have less than a year's supply of food for the global population on hand at any one time. This simple fact has critical implications for our society. Indeed, it certainly does. So we really must focus on, um, in my case, community outreach into our community and teaching how simple this can really be to grow one's own food, feed one's family, and contribute to one's neighborhood. And so the, the, the question we want to uh, kind of get into now as solutions, uh, so how do we speed the adoption of more resilient agriculture? Creating demonstration farms would help, as would carry, and by the way, there are plenty of them in this area. Absolutely. As would carrying out system-scale research to evaluate what works best to adapt specific practices to general principles in different settings. So some of that is not being done by our ag extension or our universities. But we also need to reframe our agricultural policies and subsidies. It makes no sense to continue incentivizing conventional practice that degrade the soil fertility, which begins supporting and rewarding farmers who adopt regenerated practices. Once we see through the myths of modern agriculture, practices that will build soil health become the lens through which to assess strategies for fending us all over the long haul. And let me uh, uh, indicate that uh, and we had uh, two, one session on the farm bill from 2018. That perpetuated the same system for five years. It's not going to be until 2023 that we're going to even relook at the system we have. This is horrible for us, for our community, and for our state, as well as the nation. And it brings me to the point that there is only one way to, um, there are two ways, to be involved, to change these practices, be involved, and do an organic farm 
work with your community. But secondly, we must tell our legislatures, we must make it clear that we will not accept being poisoned. And this is where it matters um, that you vote uh, and, and, and make your voice heard of what you will and will not accept. Okay, now we're going to give you some places to go to look at some things that are on the front burner. Uh, there's a man down in, um, in Georgia, Athens. His name's Frank Holtzman, H-O-L-Z-M-A-N. And his book is Radical Regenerative Gardening and Farming, Biodynamic Principles and Perspectives. So he's coming from the uh, biodynamic side of it, which, um, if anything, is a little bit more woo-woo than the permaculture side. Uh, but I would uh, encourage anybody to look at uh, a Rudolf Steiner and the biodynamic uh, principles. We have a fabulous institute, Josephine Porter, up in Virginia that produces the preps. And even if you're not as uh, crazy about how it got uh, to be a prep. Uh, you got to uh, understand that the darn things work, and you might as well use them. I definitely use 506, uh, which is uh, fungal uh, bio prep uh, for ginseng, for the aerial parts of ginseng. And it's a, a major part of... Uh, 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 practices on uh, Eagle Feather Organic Farm. Uh, biodynamic farming is uh, a very, very uh, new and uh, uh, has some, uh, some new proponents to it in this area. And uh, you'll, you can go on one of my older uh, podcasts and find a whole talk on biodynamic farming. The other is permaculture. Uh, and permaculture, uh, there was a, a gentleman in this area uh, named Peter Bain, B-A-N-E, and he has a, a permaculture handbook, uh, Garden Farming for Town and Country. And it got uh, a recommendation from Mother Earth News. He's been in the area a little bit, uh, but uh, this is uh, a field that is gotten to the place now that major uh, countries, New Zealand being one, uses uh, permaculture as its uh, agricultural principles all the way down to small towns and, and countries uh, uh, that are... Uh, uh, using this and understanding that this is going to help them out. Yes, I didn't know that was New Zealand's um, standard practice to do permaculture, and it's good to hear because it's just one step at a time making changes, and it is important. Um, and the Steiner method is just so full of um, uh, of ideas, the Steiner uh, research of, um, of biodynamics and their practices are, uh, I find them quite wonderful. And now we're also going to uh, mention uh, uh, something brand new on the horizon called biochar. 
Now, our number uh, 31, uh, ep uh, episode 31 with Greg Gross talks about this in detail. Uh, we were highlighting a book called Burn, B-U-R-N, like in Nancy, and that's from Albert Bates, who is uh, over at the farm in Tennessee. Um, and uh, he ha I, I encourage you to buy his book, Burn. Uh, uh, he's a good man, and it's going to go for good causes. Uh, the, the key here uh, that uh, Greg and I talk about on number 31 is the fact that biochar has been used for since cavemen. And uh, uh, the, the practice of putting small bits of wood that have basically decomposed in a fire, putting that into your compost bin allows the microbes a little house to live in. And this was a fascinating thing to just recently learn from you, Robert. I had no idea. Yeah. And, and so uh, another, uh, besides uh, putting our urine into our compost, uh, I now uh, put uh, the little blocks of wood that ends at the end of the fire. Yeah. Instead of uh, I separate the ash and that, and, and those little tiny pieces of wood I put into my compost to become homes for the uh, microbial elements that make good compost uh, for us to use for the healthy plants. And so how does one know their soil, their compost is good? Oh, well, that is a much larger question. <laughs> um, there is a lady, um, and... Um, uh, she uh, has a soilfoodweb.com, soilsfoodweb.com. Elaine, uh, and I'm blanking on her last name. She was with NC, uh, she was with Oregon State and wrote uh, the majority of the USDA. Uh, uh, Bible on um, uh, fungi and bacteria in our soils, which were what everybody used to do before we came along with chemicals. And so this uh, uh, lady has a company now that can t uh, test compost, but it's not cheap. It's like $300 to get a sample test. Yes, because people often ask me, how do you know the soil is okay? And I say, because I do a humanure method, well, you and your garden have probably in the past used cow manure or goat manure. And, you know, this is just human manure. I, I know what I'm eating and what people that visit me eat. And so, and it degrades for an entire year uh, once covered. Um, and the plants that are produced from it are fabulous, large and wonderful, tasty, and I haven't gotten sick yet. Well, here's a, a thing uh, for those people that are a little squeamish, and uh, it, it, it usually is an um, unwritten rule, but a rule that you usually use uh, humanure on fruit and nut trees, 
uh, and, and trees rather than in veggies. Yes. And that's um, uh, can be modified, I believe, by using uh, veggies that are root growing, carrots or uh, uh, other uh, onions, garlic, uh, would ob- be obvious and that those things uh, like tomatoes uh, might not uh, have uh, that kind of uh, connection to, to the soil yes. the way the other ones. So, uh, but just to make uh, be safe, what uh, Joe Hollis does up in Silo um, uh, at uh, Mountain Garden is he usually takes uh, a 55-gallon bucket, digs a hole, which is a big hole. Yes, it and, is. And then he uh, puts the 55-gallon bucket in there, and then he plants a fruit tree on top of it. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. I love and, that. And, and so that, that definitely is a nice circle rotation that uh, he has up there. That is a big hole. <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's do a little bit of a recount. We're coming to the end of our our story uh, here on soils. We want to uh, 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 reiterate that David Montgomery uh, wrote an article uh, about the myths uh, that large-scale agriculture feeds the world today, which it doesn't, that large farms are more efficient than small organic farms, which, which it aren't. is not, <laughs> and that conventional farming is necessary to feed the world, which, which it, it is not. not. And so um, we encourage all of the listeners uh, to uh, uh, look at their soil in a different way right now and understand that uh, one thing you can do uh, to uh, help the next generation is build healthy soils and not uh, take all of the nutrients away from the soils without putting anything back. That, and to remember that you do not have to use chemicals to have a healthy garden. Absolutely. Uh, we, we want to also uh, state again that uh, beneficial insects, permaculture, especially no-till, uh, biodynamic farming, especially some of their uh, uh, soil amendments. Uh, Composting. Uh, permac- uh, uh, predator uh, pollinators, uh, how we have to create places for pollinators. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All of these things are the new way of producing food for yourself. And we're hoping that uh, the community gets on board and uh, that there is uh, some positive uh, gain from uh, what we've been telling everybody today. Yes, indeed. We sure do. Okay. So uh, we're coming to the end of our session here. Uh, Want to uh, thank again... Uh, Cynthia Johnson uh, with uh, Moon Made Botanicals, and that's uh, .com. Yep, .com. Moon Made, one word. Moon Made, it's M-A-I-D, botanicals with an S, .com, and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr and, and all those places. 
and that she has a a really neat place over in Tennessee uh, that I haven't gotten over to yet, but I'm expecting in the nicer weather to make a trip. Uh, and um, we, uh, we, we want to also uh, reiterate that if you wanted to listen to any of the old shows, to go to www.ncgoldenseal.com and that uh, 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 I will be at the Organic Growers School coming up in May, 7th and 8th. I'll have a booth. Everybody come by. And for those people who are listening to this on the second go-round in the fall, that was uh, sensitive to timing, and (laughs) it may not make any sense. Also, the Herb Festival you'll be? At the Herb Festival in the beginning of May. Yes. Uh, And we want to sign off now, uh, wishing everybody a great week, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Robert Itis for Plants and Their Friends, thanking Cynthia Johnson for coming over. Yes, and bye for now. Bye. <laughs> Bahujonehe